Well, good evening, and thank you so much again for coming out tonight. My name is Frank Goodyear. I'm a curator of photographs here at the National Portrait Gallery. We're standing here in the second floor rotunda, and this is one of the very most special places here in the old patent office building. This south wing is uh, the old wing, of, the oldest wing of this particular building, and uh, with the famous George Washington at the Battle of Princeton, uh, at the entrance to our America's President's exhibitions. This is uh, certainly a, a space of great honor. And we've decided uh, this year to mount a, a small four-work uh, exhibition about uh, Mark Twain. And we do so uh, on the occasion of the anniversary of his, um, uh, the 100th anniversary of his passing, which uh, if you saw the news reports last month, uh, generated a great deal of um, uh, attention, renewed attention once again uh, to uh, Samuel Clemens, whose pen name, of course, was Mark Twain. Um, I thought I'd just begin this evening by just uh, reading um, the first paragraph of the notice in the New York Times uh, of his passing um, 100 years ago. Dateline, Danbury, Connecticut, April 21st. Samuel Langhorn Clemens, Mark Twain, died at 22 minutes after 6 o'clock tonight. Beside him on the bed lay a beloved book. It was Carlyle's French Revolution. And near this book, his glasses, pushed away with a weary sigh a few hours before. Uh, too weak to speak clearly, Give me my glasses, he had written on a piece of paper. He received them, put them down, and sunk into unconsciousness, from which he glided almost imperceptibly into death. He was 74 years old. We've gathered together just three images of Twain, uh, an early photographic portrait from the 1870s, um, two later uh, photographic uh, portraits, one from 1903 and 1907, and this uh, grand uh, full-length portrait by the very fashionable New York uh, portrait artist John White Alexander, which we believe uh, is a posthumous portrait. There's been a great deal of debate uh, among scholars of Alexander's work and of, uh, of Twain's own biography about exactly when this painting uh, was completed. Uh, we have labeled it here circa 1912 because we think uh, that um, there was a notation in one of Alexander's notebooks uh, from 1912 that suggested that the painting remained unfinished. We'll get to the works here in a second. Of course, Samuel Clemens is one of America's most uh, celebrated, most beloved authors. In his lifetime, William Dean Howells uh, called him the Lincoln of our literature. In the years after his death, Ernest Hemingway uh, declared that all modern American literature descends from one book, Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. It is very true that uh, uh, Twain uh, was a, an exceptional figure. There were reports in uh, newspapers uh, in the weeks leading up to his death and the weeks following his death, nearly every single day, uh, notices about his condition, and then notices of his passing, and then tributes that poured in from around the country uh, and from around the world uh, to celebrate uh, this remarkable writing achievement. 
I think that for sure Twain um, is important because of the extraordinary uh, topics that he addressed in his fiction and his nonfiction as well. But for me, what continues to resonate and what continues to be so important to me about Mark Twain was the voices that he brought forward, um, his reintroducing um, vernacular language uh, into our literature. And he did so in part because he was such an extraordinarily well-traveled person himself. And he was always well attuned uh, to the voices that he was encountering uh, in his particular travels. I want to take you very briefly uh, through his life um, to make this point about what a kind of global citizen uh, Mark Twain was. Mark Twain, as many of us know, uh, was born uh, in a small, unincorporated town in uh, Missouri in the year 1835, and would in fact spend the first 35 years of his life uh, in the Midwest and in the Far West. Um, He was born uh, to a lawyer uh, who was not particularly good at his trade, oftentimes had um, financial uh, setbacks, for a time, Twain's family uh, owned slaves. When um, the Civil War uh, broke out, uh, Twain was working as a riverboat pilot. Um, But when the Civil War uh, closed down all boat traffic along the Mississippi, uh, his uh, short-lived career as a river pilot ended, uh, and he accompanied his uh, older brother uh, to Nevada Territory, His older brother had just been um, nominated, uh, well, not a nominated, he had been appointed uh, the new governor of of this new uh, Nevada territory. And Twain accompanied his older brother uh, to to Nevada to work as his personal uh, secretary. Twain, while in Nevada and and his years in the far west, did some prospecting, did a little gold mining, um, invested in some uh, mining and and timber claims, um, and began to have a keen interest in in journalism. Uh, Began uh, writing um, for the local uh, newspaper in Carson City and in Virginia City. Uh, His success as an author, um, as a a journalist, is such that uh, he is given a, a... a fairly, a relatively well-paying job uh, at a newspaper in San Francisco and, and moves uh, to San Francisco um, uh, and works for the Alta California. Um, also during this time period begins to understand that uh, there is a tremendous popularity in the kind of what was known as the Lyceum circuit, uh, this uh, public lecture tours. Uh, These tours were both localized and nationals. And Twain, who uh, was a good public speaker um, and had funny stories to tell uh, and was a keen observer of human nature, uh, uh, became an early success on on these lecture circuits. The Alta California was so taken by his uh, success Uh, that they sent him uh, on a trip uh, to uh, Europe um, in the year um, 1867. Um, 
<clears throat> he traveled throughout uh, Europe, through North Africa, the Middle East, and he would send back all of these long letters about his observations of the, of the peoples, of, of the places that he, he was observing. Um, this, of course, uh, resulted in his first really successful um, uh, commercial publication, The Innocents Abroad, uh, published in 1869. This trip also, though, uh, introduced him to his future wife, um, um, Olivier, who he met on board the ship uh, that was crossing uh, the Atlantic uh, at, at, at this time. In 1869, uh, with the publication of The Innocents Abroad, um, uh, Twain uh, relocates from the West uh, to um, uh, Buffalo, New York, which is where uh, Olivia's family was, um, continues this courtship, uh, eventually is engaged and is married. Twain borrows money from his uh, father-in-law to invest in a, in a local Buffalo newspaper, um, and seems uh, to be uh, embarking on a, a new sort of a period of, of maturity, starting a family, running a newspaper, uh, settled in a comfortable home for the first time, um, really because the 35 years that preceded it, he was always this kind of itinerant uh, character. Um, the first picture that we see right here uh, which is a <clears throat> photograph by the New York photographer Jeremiah Gurney, was created in New York City around uh, 1873, the year in which uh, Twain published uh, The Gilded Age with um, his neighbor, Charles Dudley Warner. Uh, Twain would relocate once again in the early 1870s to Hartford, Connecticut, uh, and became part of an extraordinary network of uh, literary friends and uh, uh, social reformers and society uh, people. Um, with um, books like uh, Roughing It, uh, The Gilded Age, um, all of the uh, essays that he was publishing, uh, the lectures that he was giving, um, Twain had begun to uh, not only make a national name for himself, but to amass quite uh, a sizable uh, financial uh, um, resources behind him, so much so that he began to build that wonderful uh, house uh, in Hartford, uh, Connecticut, full of all of the latest gadgets, including uh, telephones and uh, burglary uh, alarms. Uh, and so this particular photographic portrait, it's a small little uh, carte de visite uh, photograph, uh, comes from this particular period uh, when he is a new family man living in Hartford, Connecticut, very much on the rise in American literary circles. <clears throat> the next 20 years or so of Twain's career in Hartford is really his most fruitful and where some of the great, uh, not only his great masterpieces, but some of the greatest uh, pieces in, in American uh, literature were, were, were authored. Uh, first, most famously in 1876, uh, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, a kind of classic uh, story of uh, uh, boyhood, sort of uh, um, 
mischievous, rough-and-tumble life, uh, recalling nostalgically his own upbringing uh, in Hannibal, Missouri. Uh, the town in, in, in Tom Sawyer is called St. Petersburg, but it's modeled very closely uh, after the community in which he was raised uh, along the banks uh, of the Mississippi River. Um, Perhaps, though, his greatest masterpiece during this period is, of course, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, which is, in one sense, a, uh, a second volume uh, uh, <clears throat> that is built off of Tom Sawyer, uh, but in many ways, especially since it involves many of the same type of character, same, same characters, Becky and Tom and Huck and Jim are all there, but it's actually... Uh, a much more a sophisticated um, and and b darker um, uh, novel that's very much uh, concerned with um, various social crises that are very much alive in post-Reconstruction America. Uh, in particular, the whole question of race. Jim, who is the um, escaped slave who is going to ride uh, down the Mississippi uh, with um, Huck um, and the kind of what are we, what's going to happen to, to Jim? Um, uh, what is going to happen in the uh, wake of um, uh, Reconstruction's um, end and uh, the increasing sort of challenge that Americans had in grappling with uh, uh, race uh, in, in this country. Uh, an extraordinary uh, novel, um, as I say, I suggested earlier that Hemingway suggested, uh, represents, you know, the beginning of a new modern American uh, literature. It's, of course, also uh, during this time period that um, Twain, who had ex extraordinary energy, uh, began to uh, invest in all sorts of uh, new technologies. A uh, typesetter machine uh, was something that he thought, based on his journalistic experience, was going to revolutionize um, magazine and newspaper uh, publications. Um, Twain was sinking upwards of $3,000 a month uh, into this, uh, to the development of this new invention. Um, this went on for five, six, seven, eight, nine years. Uh, and the machine, when it was ultimately brought forward uh, before a group of investors who might want to uh, uh, to manufacture it in a large scale, it broke down. Um, he lost that, great invent that, that great investment, um, and this is something that, that very much troubled him. He was always a, a, a tinker. Um, he, um, <coughs> he did um, file several patents, uh, including uh, Mark Twain's, what is it called? Mark Twain's uh, self-pasting scrapbook uh, was one of the patents that actually was a commercial success. I don't think I've ever seen a Mark Twain self-pasting uh, album before, but I think it's uh, uh, an interesting idea. So this is all to say that uh, these various... Um, living uh, quite uh, large and um, investing in all sorts of, of different opportunities um, and having those investments turn bad. And then the, um, 
the, the stock market crash of 1893 really uh, found uh, Twain suddenly in a position where he was on the brink of financial bankruptcy and actually had to uh, leave this country uh, and resettle in Europe uh, where um, he had uh, sort of... Um, financial sort of managers who were sort of tending to his debts and where he was uh, writing on commission, where he was lecturing feverishly to try to, again, uh, build up uh, his uh, bank account. Um, the period, and he spends almost 10 years uh, in Europe, uh, where he's treated almost like Ben Franklin was in a previous uh, um, a previous century as the sort of quintessential American, uh, full of all of these wild stories of the rough-and-tumble uh, United States, that he became this kind of citizen, uh, uh, <clears throat> this sort of public face of America abroad. In the year 1900, uh, Twain came back to um, America, in part because he wanted to... Um, think about uh, the future of his uh, literary estate. Um, the Harper's Publishing House wanted to um, buy the rights to all of his books and all of his writings, and they were prepared to give him a grand sum of money, not to mention an annuity of $25,000 a year for a period of five years. Uh, and this prompted Twain to return and to negotiate uh, this new particular contract, which he ultimately signed in 1903, which is around the time period when this particular photograph by Alfred J. Meyer, uh, taken in his uh, office uh, in his Hartford home, was taken here. <clears throat> um, this um, business arrangement with Harper's basically solidified his financial situation uh, and was after 10, 15 years of real um, uncertainty as to his financial uh, situation, it finally sort of solved that problem. But that's not to say that he wasn't continued to be um, really um, haunted by all sorts of ghosts. Um, he has uh, the death of, of, of several children. Um, in 1904, his dear wife Olivia uh, passes away uh, suddenly. Um, Twain becomes very um, upset about what he perceives as uh, this kind of colonial aggression on the part of, of the United States and England and other European nations around the globe. And he wrote quite bitterly about this sort of uh, imperialistic ambition that these different nations, including most importantly, the United States, was manifesting itself during the Roosevelt uh, era. Um, <clears throat> it was at a time also when he adopted uh, his famous uh, white suit uh, that he wore here in Washington for the first time in February of, of 1906, 
Why white in February? Well, he was um, obviously defying convention. But I think that he was also, of course, drawing attention to himself. He is a, this public personality, and he came to Washington to testify before Congress about the existing copyright laws. He felt as though there ought to be greater protections for authors. Uh, and as such, uh, he came to Washington. He donned his famous uh, white suit, which he wore occasionally from time to time during the last uh, four or five years uh, of his life. Sadly, we do not have any um, of the white suit photographs here on, on view. The, the last photograph that we have here from 1907 is a beautiful platinum print by an English photographer named Ernest Heasted uh, that was done on the occasion of uh, Twain being honored uh, at Oxford University with an honorary uh, PhD, an honorary doctorate. Um, again, which speaks to how beloved he was not only in this country but abroad um, as well. Uh, another favorite uh, daughter of his, uh, Jean, um, who had been um, shown signs of epilepsy as a young girl, died quite suddenly in 1909, and really uh, following her passing, um, he was, his, his, his health and his uh, mind uh, increasingly uh, was in uh, sort of sharp decline, um, at, that his travels were quite limited, um, and that, as I say, uh, he ultimately um, would pass away April 21st, 1910. Which brings me finally to the painting that you see here in the center. John White Alexander, one of the most fashionable New York portraitists, trained in Munich, um, <coughs> uh, Munich, Germany in the 1870s, uh, painted many celebrated uh, individuals. Our portrait of uh, Walt Whitman downstairs is a John White Alexander portrait. Um, Twain had commissioned um, Alexander to paint a portrait of his daughter Clara, who was a famous, um, who was an aspiring um, uh, vocalist, a singer, um, in 1898. And they became fast friends during this portrait commission. Um, at Mark Twain's uh, 70th birthday party in 1905, among the many honored guests who was there was John White Alexander. And some speculate that this painting might have been created from around that time period of the commission of his daughter Clara's portrait or that particular birthday party. But recent research into the John White Alexander uh, papers at the Archives of American Art has uh, suggested there are some notes in some of Alexander's uh, notebooks that suggest that he was still at work on this painting in 1912 um, and that he wrote in his um, in the margins uh, of his notebook that the painting remained unfinished, which is kind of interesting to, to think about. Um, he has signed the painting here, which suggests some degree of finality to the painting, uh, and yet he noted in his book that it was somehow uh, unfinished. The painting remained in the artist's um, estate at the time of the, his death, Alexander's death in 1915, um, it passed through several uh, private hands, and the portrait gallery acquired it uh, in 1981. Um, it's a very handsome uh, likeness. Alexander was uh, the kind of painter uh, 
who certainly had been influenced by, the, uh, by Whistler and some of the kind of leading uh, sort of modern artists of the period, and yet he it was also somebody who recognized as a portraitist, uh, one of his primary responsibilities was, was to convey uh, the character of his sitter in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a gentle and, and compassionate way. And I think that you have some of that here. You, you see, of course, uh, Twain uh, holding in his right hand his uh, cigar. Uh, Twain was a heavy, heavy cigar sm uh, smoker throughout his life. Um, it doesn't convey, I think, um, the moodiness that Twain. Twain had fits of, uh, of depression, of, of anger. Uh, there are extraordinary moments of, uh, of, of tremendous uh, joy, um, and that this, this energy kind of fueled much of, of his literary production. I don't know if that necessarily comes through uh, in the painting, uh, but it certainly, um, what I can say is that it is a, uh, a work that is very much the product um, of a friendship uh, between um, artist and, and author from the period of um, Twain's um, uh, late life. Um, I went back and <clears throat> when I was doing a little bit of research earlier this morning about in preparation for this, I tried to find a sound recording of Mark Twain. There is no, there are no sound recordings. We don't know what his voice actually sounded like. I would love to, there, there is reputed on the internet that Thomas Edison made some recordings of Mark Twain, but they are now lost. I'd love to hear what Mark Twain sounded like. I'd love to hear the cadence of his voice, all of the different um, uh, regional dialects that he incorporated. Because I think that that's one of the kind of defining characteristics of his literature is that he was such a careful observer of these different voices uh, from all of these travels. Um, late in life, he went around the world, uh, went to Australia, went to India, went to South Africa, and he studied very carefully the, the people that he encountered, um, listening closely uh, to them, noticing their various foibles and their various uh, uh, eccentricities. Um, so I sadly can't, we sadly cannot hear Twain, but I think that, um, as I say, one of his uh, great sort of uh, contributions to American letters is the incorporation of the great diversity of voices uh, into, into our national literature. Thank you all very much for coming out tonight. I'd be more than happy to answer any questions that you might have. Yes? I was wondering, um, if Twain commissioned the portrait, why did the painter still have it in possession? Twain commissioned a portrait of his daughter. He did not commission a portrait. And the speculation here is that um, Alexander did this uh, as very much uh, a personal um, gesture on his own part that uh, because of his friendship uh, with Twain um, felt as though this was something that he wanted to do whether it was meant for um, uh, a specific person or a specific organization it's not known uh, but it wasn't commissioned to, um. We don't. 
we don't. We don't know. Um, it, it, it was, there's no notes about when uh, it might have been started, whether Twain ever sat for it, whether he's working from a photograph, uh, whether he's working from, you know, recollections or sketches that he might have made uh, during Twain's lifetime. We don't know. It's one of the great mysteries. Yes? Well, he was from Missouri. Um, <clears throat> during the Civil War, he spent uh, two weeks um, in a little sort of militia group, uh, a Confederate militia group, but they never saw any type of, of action. Um, and when he moves to the far west, his sympathy uh, moves much more towards the Union uh, and, and opposed to, uh, to the Confederacy's desire to sort of break away. Um, it's, it's interesting that um, at various times during his life, when he was flush with caste, he provided uh, scholarship money for several uh, African-American uh, students, college um, scholarships uh, for various African-American students. So race was something that was uh, very much at the forefront of his um, activism uh, as, a, as a person and, and as an author. But whether he thought of himself as a southerner or not... Wouldn't that be great to know? I would love to know that. I, I just, I don't know. No. No, we have probably about 40 likenesses of Twain in the collection. Two of our better photographs are now out in San Diego with an exhibition about the American West that's traveling right now. So um, that's why we don't have one of our early Western pictures of him right now. We do have a couple of pictures of him in a white suit, but um, none that was fit what we wanted to do here. Formal education, what led to his, his development as a writer? He was a, um, his schooling was quite sporadic, uh, and he really had left uh, any type of sort of formal schooling by the age of 13 or 14 years old. Uh, he took a whole sort of series of, of, of jobs throughout the country uh, as, as a sort of a teenager. He was you know, he was in the South, he was in St. Louis, he was in uh, New York and Boston, uh, and he was trying to kind of find himself and find what his, uh, what his professional career was going to be. But his education, his formal education, really stopped at around age 14 or so and was all very much a product of uh, Hannibal, Missouri. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much for coming out.